Yeah. Is this the podcast that played nothing for 90 minutes? Or was that a different podcast? Yes. Yeah. No, yeah. That's yes. Us, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Very Did creative. you like that? Or didn't it's like also it? the it's also the one where you got your where where the chief as I said in the text you the chief nickname became public. Yeah, um, yeah. It, don't get me wrong. It's um the podcast was a tough listen, but then I suppose the game was a tough watch, so it works well. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the QPR podcast. I'm David Fraser um, and I am joined by two other regular podcasters and a guest who's going to be with us for the first part of the show. Um, So uh, with me via Zoom, of course, because that's how we do things these days, is Paul Finney. Hi, Paul. How are you doing, David? Lovely to see you again. Lovely haircut. You're looking cool. Thank you. Thank you. We haven't done this for a couple of weeks, so... Yes, I can confirm I have had a haircut and a beard trim in that time. Uh, also there is Chris Charles. Oh, yeah. All right, Chris? Yeah. Yeah, I noticed. Yeah, I've just 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 seen the beard or lack of beard. Yeah, it takes years off you, mate. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm, I don't like it, though. <laughs> I don't like it. So- That's some serious creeping, Chris. It doesn't. It wasn't. I was going to say, I mean, yeah, I'd put him no older than 42 now. Thank you very much. So, uh, for the record, I'm 41. Yeah. Um, right. Uh, what do I need to do? I need to. We also have a guest with us. Um, and I will in, let me do the messages first, and then I'll, I'll go to the guest. So, thank you to everyone that listens. Uh, if anybody this is the first time they've listened, uh, you can catch all our old episodes on our website at qprpod.co.uk. We have to make two thank yous for the people that have supported this podcast tonight. So. Gosh, um, I always struggle with this fella's surname, so I do apologise. But thank you for the beers to Paul Similowicz. I think mm. I did that right. I think you I did. did that right. Um, and thank you to the sponsor, Warren O'Reilly, um, uh, who is from Nashville. And we always keep repeating this, that we have a uh, spot. We have lots of listeners and sponsors from America, and we're very grateful to them. So thank you for that. It's very nice of someone from Nashville to send us a Johnny Cash. Exactly. That was exactly. awful, wasn't it? That was really bad. Yeah, I do apologise. That was terrible. <laughs> um, let's get on to the guests. We are very lucky to be joined by a player who played for Rangers a couple of hundred times over five, six years, something like that, and has had a very big week, actually. So we're very lucky to have got him. We have got down the line, as they say, I think from Salt Lake City, Ned Manua. That is Hi, correct, Ned. yeah. Hey, how are you? Very good. How are you? Yeah, um, I'm good. I'm a bit cold, though. It's been snowing quite badly here over the past few days, given the fact it was 20 degrees, 20 degrees a few days before that. But yeah, it's, uh, it's quite an experience. It's really snowing there? It's like snowing, snowing. Like my, la- my game on the weekend was in a blizzard, like snowing, snowing. And the reminds you of Manchester. Listen, so <laughs> Manchester compared to this place, like, so Manchester is like so timid, so mild, never gets too hot, never gets too cold, mostly wet. But then here in the summer, it's really dry. Like, it doesn't, it might rain two days in three months, always above 30 degrees. But when winter sets in, my friend, this is a different beast. Uh, Oof. Ned, 
set the scene for us. Salt Lake is the British equivalent, is the American equivalent of which British city? Like, is it is it a Manchester? Is it a Norwich? Is it a Brighton? What is, what 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 is Belfast. it in terms of? Yeah, Glasgow. Mm, uh, it's good questions. It's so the state itself, the population is only maybe three or four million, but it's a very very big state. Um, but where I live, this is where most of the population is. And I think within 20 minutes of it, north to south, you're probably looking at maybe a million people. So it has that sense of like a, a city in parts, but very quickly you start going into absolute wilderness. We're talking like some of the national parks here, it looks like something from prehistoric times. Uh, but one thing I would say is that the, the mentality of the people here um, is known as like the beehive state. And coming from Manchester, where they're known for worker bees, the mentality course, yeah. is probably similar to Manchester, but the scenery is incredible. Every day I wake up, look out my window and I'm seeing I'm seeing mountains flanking on both sides, people going up to ski resorts 10 minutes away from my house. So I don't think I can really compare it to anywhere in the UK. But you finished up there, right? So yeah, it's been a big yeah. week for you. Uh, it's big. Yeah, maybe you could say it's a big week. You could say it's a big week, yeah. It's, it was always you've retired. To, you've retired, um, right? But does it make it a big week though? I have retired, but I'm still alive and I'm ready to go and see family and friends at home. Um, yeah, so I've stopped my playing career and the last game of the season obviously had to be the first game of my career where I played with an orange ball and couldn't see anything on the field at all. <laughs> like when I say it was a blizzard, I mean like a blizzard. It was insane. But, you know, it's, it's going to be a lasting memory of uh, two good years here. So it's been, it's been a lot of fun. Does it Why seem you... like... Does it, sorry, Sam. Does, does it seem like a... Does it seem like your career has gone within like a you know blink of an eye, or have you have you felt it through the years? Um, it, in certain moments, like especially the tough ones, it feels like it's going so so slowly. But then, as everything passes, like I've um, my wife, she put some stuff up in my in the house to celebrate my retirement. We had pictures from when I was scoring my first goal, which was two thousand and six pictures from playing under 21s which was like 2007 I'm thinking that's such a long time ago but I remember mm. being in those moments and I, obviously you didn't know you never know which way your career is going to go but I think looking back it, it, it I think every day felt like a day if you know what I mean and I feel like I have been involved in the game for a long time and I think it is the right time to go because I'm sitting next to people who were born the year that I started my career so there's only so much you can talk to somebody about when they're 16 years old and you've been playing for 16 years. So, so is that why you decided to go in the end? Was it, was it purely footballing reasons? Because I know you had a bit of a fallout with the, the, the owner. No, 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 no. All, all, all that stuff just happened to just add to this year in general. Like when I came over, I signed essentially a two and a half year contract. And I thought for how old the kids were and how old I was going to be when the contract's done, I thought that would be a good time to stop and to go back and sort of start the rest of my life you know whether we won the competition for three years straight or whether we finished bottom for three years straight this decision was was already made and I think the fact that went on with the things that went on with the owner and stuff that's you know that's neither here nor there in terms of my decision making but it's, it's definitely something which I'll uh, be spending the rest of my life talking about because it was uh it was it was a very interesting time let's say and can, for those that don't know can you give us a, a, a potted account if you like of what happened <laughs> Um, so basically, um, so there's there've been there's been lots of talk this year and lots of lots of unrest in the country to do with racial injustice and things like this, and so many people have been involved from 
everyday civilians to politicians to sportsmen like it's been a big big talking point and everybody's been affected by it in some way shape or form now don't get me wrong not everybody agrees with it but everybody's been affected by it and it's been at the forefront of conversations so there was one particular day when um you think in the nba playoffs the milwaukee bucks decided to boycott their game and no one boycotts games in america but they decided to do so which led to the rest of the nba boycotting their games on that day and before you knew you knew it there was a trickle down effect which went all the way through sports on that day and it was because people were trying to show a sign of support and show solidarity towards what they were fighting against because in that moment they'd been in the shooting in Kenosha and things like this and it was very very it was a very big talking point it's a very big moment in the nation so that trickle down effect made its way to the MLS and i think apart from one game i think there were probably eight or nine others which all got boycotted that day but it wasn't a league thing it was a players thing firstly that's something that needs to be noted the players said they weren't going to play so then the league came out and said we're going to cancel all our games so you see the wording makes it seem like it's one way or the other but that happened and as i say it was all of american sport it wasn't just one or two sports or one or two teams it was all of american sport showing solidarity in that moment and i think the very few moments in our lifetimes i think where we've seen that level of unity from anything especially across all different uh, walks of life and so on so we did that and you know everything's in a good space we're having discussions we're talking about events in the country and then the next day i'll never forget this i was going to have an interview with bbc 5 live i think at 10 o'clock in the morning my time and at 9:50 i got sent a link to a story um in which our owner had gone onto his radio, radio station because he owns basically most of utah a radio station and he was criticizing all the players and all this stuff like attacking us but the thing is he never spoke to any of the players he just went onto his platform to criticize us first and like i say people are entitled to their own opinions but to feel like you're stepping into a situation where something good has happened to then be told that the person with the most power says you're all wrong and he's not prepared to listen to anything that you're saying about it it was insane so i had a lot of emotion when i went onto that bbc show and that led into a few other things happening and then i think by the end of that day he changed his tone because he was getting so heavily criticized by all the people within the state who support the team because the team itself is a very inclusive team you know we have a men's we have two men's teams we have a women's team there's lots of different um races lots of different sexualities and stuff like this within those teams and so on so he criticized everybody and he criticized everything that they stood for so then next thing as i say there's an investigation going on into the owner he's having to sell the club and stuff like this and it was all because of words that he said himself so someone says i i was the one who cuz i sorry i was i spoke against what he said and people say like i was the one who basically ended this owner or i was at war with him or whatever but it, when you look at it it was his own there were his own words which caused his own problems and his misunderstanding of the situation led to him having to sell the club which he loved so dearly but that's unfortunately the way it has to be and if you want progress i think you need to have the right people in the right places Okay. Oh, uh, well, thank Sorry, you. Sorry, that was. That was, I, was I apologize. No, I apologize. there was there was there was quite a lot. There's quite a lot. So so we're we're only we've only got you for a limited amount of time. We haven't got onto the QPR stuff yet, but we'll keep yes. going with this. So that is not unconnected to some comments that you made that I think maybe you made in the Five Live interview that you're talking about, where I think you were asked about how you felt in America, and um, mm-hmm. and the quote was that you've never felt 100 percent safe. Now. 
we are talking eight days on from a momentous day in any American, any portion of American history, which is, of course, the election. Um, but explain that, because you've been there for okay. three years. Um, and, and to say that's quite a big thing. Um, I think for some people, when you go on holiday to America, it's a very different experience to when you go and live here. Because when you live here, you see stuff on a day-to-day basis. Like even when you track the news from back home, you'll see highlights. You won't see everything. But when you're here and you're seeing stuff on a 24-hour basis in terms of what's working, what's being said, like Fox News is the biggest news channel, but Fox News is also arguably the most divisive news channel. So you're seeing people who believe one thing and people who believe another. Like you could have, you could see something like, as I say, a shooting or say like the George, the George Floyd murder. You could see that, but you still have half the people who think that it's something else. Some people could be calling for, um, say, defunding the police or something, whereas the other people are saying, no, I'm going to stand with the police. And it was crazy, but that was just an example of many things where you start to realise the country is essentially very divided. But one thing which it has in common are the, uh, the rights of the civilians. So the First Amendment and the Second Amendment and so on. And my issue essentially is the Second Amendment is one which I'm not comfortable with, which is the right to bear arms. So when you walk around the streets and you do whatever, depending on which state you're in, there's a chance everybody could legally be holding a firearm. But the issue I have is then you add a layer to it and you realize that not everybody agrees with who you are as a person. So Mm. you've actively got potential um, issues and rifts and stuff just out on the street, but they're entitled to have a weapon to defend themselves, in quotation marks, defend themselves. And they have a right to protest and a right to have freedom of speech. So some of the things which I've heard here in the past two, three years, if we're back in England, it's fringe. But over here, people say, well, we're entitled to do this and we're entitled to carry our guns. So when someone wants to go and protest, I'll say this summer, when there would be a Black Lives Matter protest in the state of Utah, sometimes we met with people who are counter-protesting waving Blue Lives Matter flags whilst carrying assault rifles. And in my head, like I've been in England most of my life. If I see an assault rifle, I run away. But over mm-hmm. here, it's like, well, that's their right. So just let them have it. You know, so when that whole that whole feel safe thing, don't get me wrong, it's not like I feel completely safe anywhere I go in the world anyway. But over here, it just feels different because of, as I say, the rights that they have as human beings. And, you know, that's in their constitution. And, you know, they're essentially live and die by that. How much of all that has had a bearing on your decision to retire? And and second part of that question is, explain why you are retiring. Because to my knowledge, you're not unfit. You are <laughs> no, not that not old. No. So you're not injured. No. You're 33 no. years old. So explain yeah. it. Wish I was that so, unfit. <laughs> no, I'm in, I'm in great health. I was playing well. Um, and to be honest, the whole thing about what it is to live in America hasn't affected my decision making. It's just over here. We, the spot that we live in is beautiful. Like it's without question, one of the most beautiful places I've ever lived in and seen in my life. But the thing that's missing are my family and my friends and having a wife and three kids, three young kids here. I'd like to be able to make the most of the time with the people who you know are back where I live in England. And I can't put a price on that, no matter how beautiful this place is, no matter what the sun looks like when it rises over the mountains to see my dad, to see my sisters, to see my best friends, to see whatever, you know, that has always meant more to me. But as, in terms of the retirement element of it, the plan was to always stop at this age. And like, I, I love the game, but I'm not somebody that relies on the game. For every day that I've been a professional, I've never been someone who says, 
hi, I'm Nadam, I'm a professional footballer. It's not, it's not been my identity as such. So to be able to step away, it's, it's fine because the only, like, football itself was for probably the last, it, to be fair, this all started after I came to QPR because when I came in 2012, if you remember, we had a lot of older players from Bobby Zamora's to Luke Young's to Andrew Johnson's and stuff like this. And I was 26, I think. And to hear them start talking about the end, because that's what they were close to, it made me think, well, I need to start preparing as well. So from probably the age of 26, I've been trying to create a plan as to see how long do I want to play for? And in that time, through ups and downs and so on and so forth, it got to a stage where, yes, I do love playing. I do love training, but I love days off with my family more. And as I say, that's always been, that's been on my mind for the past three, four years, looking forward to the point where I can stop playing the game but begin the rest of my life because that means more to me at this point in time. So whether I'm in good health or so on, I think being able to walk away instead of limp away from a career is a, is a great thing for me. And I'm very, very happy that I've been able to do that. No, to be honest, Ned, I think you probably remember this. We had a conversation many, many years ago and I said that you were a natural for TV and radio because you smash the stereotype, horrible football persona, the media, the press yeah. like to portray. I mean, we listen. I've met enough players. God knows you've lived with them. It's it's not even half true. It's not even a third true. And true. I think you will make a big dent in that because you you are an amazing person as a player and as you put the game forward and you talk it brilliantly as well and you give the right answers and I love that. Yeah. And it's just players being human beings. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and they don't yeah, get treated sure. properly. And yeah. Um, for sure. yeah. So is media it's, next step up? Possibly, possibly. As you were saying about players being treated as human beings, I think um, all players at some point are probably fans of the game and they see, view the game differently. But from when you end up going into that situation and being a player, you have to kind of adapt. And your human side is very hard to come out because ultimately people want to judge you for what you're doing on the field. You know what I mean? And that's fair to a certain extent, but you'll never really find what it's like you never really see what a person actually is like we've had some players we had some players at QPR some big name players at QPR who would play a great game on social media but <laughs> in the locker room they hated fans they hated fans you know what I mean but fans would be drawn towards a person who looks like on social media like they're being good to the team but the human side of them like there's some there have been some bad bad people at the club but you can't you know you don't throw them under the bus and you just let them do what they're doing but I think to be able to step away with an understanding of what it is to be on both sides so have an understanding of what people actually want to listen to like and to make different points I think a lot of people go from playing to being coaches or being pundits and they all just sound the same and all like this is who we are but it's not because a lot of people are actually very very different to that we just have to I think you have to learn how to not necessarily speak properly but just say something that's actually truthful that's entertaining you know, we've got so many stories to tell as players, but for some people, all they want to talk about is when they were, you know, playing at Brentford, kicking a ball down the channel or something like that, because they think that's what fans want to hear. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to being able to tell my stories, but also try and just prove that players aren't all the same. You know, we are, mm. in fact, very, very different. And as I say, it should be fun. Yeah, I think we're all racking our brains now to think, going back to think who had a big presence on social media. Um, mm -hmm. probably has had a few guesses. Um, yeah, you, you know. I've got you an know. idea. I've got <laughs> an know. idea. You know, you all know. You all know. Yeah. 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 Um, 
So, okay, we, 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 we're carrying on that theme. Um, so when you first started at the club, you sort of alluded to that a minute ago when you're talking about retiring, a lot different to when you left in terms of the players that were there. When you left, I think you had Brighter say Samuel and Ilias Cheska in their first games for the club in your last game. You had yes. Barry Eze playing, so we'll come on to all mm-hmm. that later. But when you first started, it was Mark Hughes, um, and there was a lot of, shall we say, um, players who were there for, for one last paycheck rather than to <laughs> shine on the field. Is that a fair comment? Um, it depends. You need to see how many people actually retired after they were at QPR. It might not be as many as you think, <laughs> but I understand what you're trying to say. And I think the club itself then, it was... And it's, you could argue still now, it's, it was lacking true identity. I think any place where you bring in lots of players and get rid of lots of players on a year-to-year basis, you can never really find um, just like forward momentum because you hope it clicks. But then even if it does click, it might, it might have clicked just through fluke as opposed to through, through actual planning and so on. Because you look at some of the best teams across all the leagues, some of the best teams in the championship or in the premiership, and there's consistency there. You have a certain style of player and you have a certain style of play. But when we came to um, that year one at QPR, you know, we brought in some more experienced players. And then year two, we bought some more experienced, but like, I wouldn't necessarily just say specifically high-end players, but players who'd never played at Loftus Road and understood what it was to play at Loftus Road. You know what I mean? Because they were coming from playing in Champions Leagues and stuff like that. So they had a skill set but it didn't necessarily fit that moment. And I'll never forget, I think it was, so we survived in year one and then year two, we're thinking, oh, we're going to kick on, we're going to kick on or whatever. But when you're doing well, everything's great. But when you're doing badly, everyone has an idea of what's required to get better. But now we were the team who had players who'd come from league one and low end championship with the team and players who were playing champions leagues and so on with their teams as well. So then when you go to a place like, Liverpool, you go to a big stadium, you've got some players saying, right, we're going to show personality today, we're going to get the ball down and try and play. And you've got some players who saying, we're going to show personality today and we're just going to stand firm, make some tackles and make it hard for them. But the two things can't work at the same time because you'll have one group of people trying to do one thing and another group trying to do another. And I think that's when the recruitment side of it kind of, it really showed how it wasn't right in that moment because we had a tough start and could you say what the identity of the club was in that point? Could you say what the playing style was? You couldn't, you couldn't do it. We had players who were capable of doing whatever, but unless you have a group of people who are all going in the same direction, doing the same thing with the same mindset, when the proverbial hits the fan, like it hits it really, really hard. And that's ultimately what happened for us, I believe. You managed to withstand that and kind of straddle, for want of a better word, both of those styles. So I always remember when uh, Sean Derry came on the podcast many years ago, it was during that time and he said that his position, his literal position in the changing room, he sat between Joey Barton and Adel Tarak, um, yeah. which sort of serves as a almost a metaphor for what you just said. Yeah. But you came in and stayed for many years and managed to straddle that. So why why were you able to fit in and um, others weren't? I think it's a, good, it's a good question. I think firstly, I like I had no desire to be moving anywhere and I wanted to play, I wanted to play games, I wanted to play well. And at the time I was being selected by managers. There was no desire for me to just try and leave somewhere if I was going to be playing at the club. But then with that, I came from the Man City squad, which won the league. But I'd also been at the Man City, which stayed up with like 
a couple of weeks to go in the Premier League as well. So I'd seen both sides of it. So to see a crisis wasn't the first time for me. Whereas for other people, like uh, say for Esteban Granero is a good friend of mine and he's a good player and he didn't work out from the QPR. But if I was coming from Real Madrid, you know, you had a Julius Azai coming from Benfica, wherever it was, like they've not had the same sort of experiences that I'd had. So yes, I was playing, I had been playing for a big club before that, but I seen a big club when it was a struggling club. Like, you know, I was a, I was a ball boy at City when they're in essentially um, League One. I, you know, that mentality of grit and just fighting through it. I, I had it, I'd been through it. So whether they said they wanted to try and play or they said they wanted to try and fight, it's like, sure, you just tell me whatever you need to do and I'll do it. And for me as a player as well, um, one thing that I was, I was never someone to take away. It's a weird saying was, by the way, but I was one that would mm -hmm. never try and take away from anybody. I'd always try and be able to mix with all sides of the dressing room and just be positive. And some people weren't necessarily capable of doing that in that moment because they all had their own ideas and, when things start going wrong, like this, one of the sad things about football is that at times can get maybe a little bit xenophobic where if a team is struggling, you'll start to see all the English people just group together and say, oh, the foreigners, it's their fault. But then for some of the foreigners, like they're, they're not understanding why they're not being brought into groups with some of the English players and stuff like this. So stuff can get very, very divisive. You start to see lots of fights and things like this. But being a guy who was raised in Manchester, I can be with the group, with the English group, but being a guy who was born in Nigeria, I can understand what it is to be a foreigner as well. So there was no problem for me in terms of mixing with whoever was in the squad, regardless of you know whether they spoke totally English or whether they spoke maybe a few words. So I think that's probably why I ended up staying in those particular moments and then going forward why I became captain and spent played so many games there. You think somewhere along the line we kind of we picked the wrong players? I mean. There's a great story about um, CC and his cars in the car park. Basically, he could fill it by himself and so on and stuff like that. Do you think that we didn't do due diligence on players in the right way for what we wanted for them? Um, was it the club's fault? Was it the agent's fault? Was it the owner's fault? What do you think went wrong? I think, there's a lot, I think there's a lot to it. I don't think a player just arrives at a club through just one person in particular because you could have a manager who wants a player. You could have an agent who recommends a player. But you still need the club to green light that player. And I think, um, you know, you can, you can try and put some blame on, say, Mark Hughes or Harry or whatever for the years that they were there based on some of the players that they signed. But they still needed to be approved by the board. And the board thought that those were good signings for the people. And, you know, this, as we've seen in recent years, they don't have to sign anybody. You know, you could say we're going for a promotion, going for a promotion push and we need more money. They've said no plenty of times from that point but they were saying yes in that time. So they thought that was going to be the right thing, the right move. I think maybe it was just, it was a bit of a learning curve because the quest for the club's identity in that moment, people were saying, this is what we're going to be, but there's no time to create an identity at the top level because you try and do it. And before you know it, you're struggling and you're going down to the championship where you need a whole new one. And I think, um, as I say, some of the signings and stuff, they were good footballers. People that came in, they were good footballers. But they did. They thought, in some of them, the mentality was, "I'm signing in West London to play for Chelsea." But no, no. Like if you know, there's a subtle difference. You sign in West London to play for QPR. The fans are different. The club's different. Everything about the place is different. And if you don't come in and understand that, say maybe they'd rather see you make a tackle than a diagonal ball, then immediately, you know, you're not necessarily going to be someone who fits in straight away. And given the yeah. fact that you were playing under pressure. And you had to find results from the get-go. Yeah, it just meant that ultimately you wouldn't it wouldn't necessarily work out.
Um, I wanted to ask you about the Aguero, or I should say Aguero game, end of yes. your first season. But yes. I, I looked today, and I never realised this, you actually played a game for Man City that season. <laughs> Barely. So, so I, I played, yeah. I, I, sorry, no, do you want to ask, do you ask your question? Or, do you well, my question, really? first of all, my question was, did you get a medal? No, 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 of course not. Of course not, no. I, so my follow-up is, do one. you consider that you have... Do do you consider that you have played a part in a title winning team, title winning season no, for a club? No, no, because I couldn't have it both ways. Because I was deeply concerned that if we went down at QPR, I would be the first player to have them to win a league and go down in the same season. Mm. So I was trying to distance myself from that. So no, I didn't win the league. Thankfully, we didn't go down. So I can just pretend none of that even mattered. But as far as far as City went, I played a few cup games, and I don't know why it even played me for the the last uh, league game, I think it was away at Wigan before I got sold, but I was there. I was training with the team, but I wasn't there, if you know what I mean. Mm. Like, he had no plans of playing me regardless of whether I was playing well in training or whatever. So, I don't I don't associate myself with that at all now. How no, was no, that no, day? Sorry. I was going to ask, how was that day for you? Because, like, it must have been a, a million mixed emotions for you. Yeah, it was, it was, it was nuts. Like, from when, I think one thing about our story, which gets forgotten about, is that we didn't stay up on the last day. We stayed up based on what happened the week before against Stoke when Gibral scored at the back post in like the 92nd minute or something like that. So mm. after we won that game and we were now in the driving seat to try and stay up, I remember thinking, oh my God, now I have to go back to City. We might have to win to stay in the Premier League. City that don't lose games at home. City that was my home with a new team if we win, they don't win the league. If they win, I could go down. The lowest point in my career would be if they won to win the league and I went down at the place which I used to call home. Like, I'll be very, very, I'll be very, very open and honest. I'd been at QPR for three months when we were heading to City to play this game. I barely knew the players, barely knew the staff, barely knew the culture. And when we get off that train in Manchester, I could tell you the exact route to get to the hotel. I could tell you all about the hotel, all the people you'll see, all the people at the stadium. Every, like I'd been going there for 10, 15 years or whatever. So to then be going out on the field, knowing that the two goals of the two teams are so different, but one result might cause distress to another. Like I was a City fan, but I was a QPR player. So I had to win. We had to stay up. But it was so crazy. Like when we were 1-0 down at half time. I remember the City fans were singing for Martin Petrov, who was playing for Bolton at the time, who's an ex-teammate of mine at City. And they were doing that because Bolton was staying up in that moment. I remember taking it so personally because here I came through that academy. I'm trying to stay up. And they were singing for someone who was there for two years. We're getting a half time. And we're talking the talk, like, come on, guys, we can do this, blah, blah, blah. But let's step aside from the whole player fan thing for a second. Who puts money on Queen's Park Rangers at 1-0 down to Man City at the Etihad with them looking to win the title, believes they're going to win the second half. It's like, you'd, you'd be a crazy person, basically. So we're saying it, we're saying it, but the belief isn't as high as, say, as it was the week before against Stoke. But anyway, we go out, we score the first goal. I'm like celebrating a little bit because I don't want to be over the top. We scored a second goal. I'm celebrating just a little bit more, like 10 metres away from Mancini, who I hated, hated with a passion. But he's 10 metres in front of loads of fans who I used to love. So I'm thinking, right, we're doing this. And then City just turned into a mess. They were so bad for like 20 minutes. 
Mm. I was thinking, we're, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. They're under pressure. They're not going to win the league. I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is insane. I didn't see this coming. And then obviously they score their goal. And if you look, and I'm sure you've heard this before, half the team thought we were going down, which is why we are hands on heads, people in on the floor. But that moment then when you look up and see our fans celebrating, see our bench celebrating, for me personally, even though we won at Wembley and stuff, that was my own personal highlight of my career because I avoided getting sent down by my old team. I watched them win. We stayed up. I was in Manchester. It was sunny. Somehow it was sunny in Manchester. It was the last day of the season. And it was the first time and only time in my career where I've seen everybody in the stadium, home fans, away fans, home team, away team, celebrating at the same time. Like if we had another five minutes to play in that game, I guarantee you no one would have touched the ball. It was one of those type things. So that was, um, that was an incredible day for me. And the scenario in which you ended up, that we stayed up, was the one which I didn't even consider in the week leading up to it. But I got it. And I feel very, very fortunate to, to have seen that and been a part of it. I'll tell you one thing. When we were two one up, there wasn't a lot of flipping friendship flying around that ground, I can tell you. Oh, I was exactly. right next, I was right next to a city fan who was placing my head in the spike mentally. I could see him doing it. But what yes. I wanted to ask it is what yeah, I wanted to ask, exactly. I mean it was almost as bad as when we sent them down to League One when um years before that you're too young to you might have been around then, I don't know. Um when it went Jimmy Pollock scored the best own goal ever. Yeah, anyway. I remember that. Yeah. Um Joey Barton. What was the player's thoughts when he got himself... Because he did get himself sent off. There wasn't, in my mind, that was probably one of the most stupidest things I've ever seen in the football pitch in my life. Yeah. What, what, what was... I mean, you're not going to know what was going through his head, but why? Um, right, OK. So let me get off the fence for a second, yeah. Uh-huh. So <laughs> as, far as, as far as Joey goes, I never got on with him. Never. OK. From academy times to... You know, to, to this day, like, I've never had any issues with him as a player because I think he can play the game well. I don't think he's the best player in the world or whatever, but I think he can play the game well. I think he has a lot of strong opinions, which lots of people have disagreed with throughout his entire career. But he can play the game. So you just play. Because I remember we, uh, for me personally, like, I ended any sort of respect I fully had for him when we were at City. And he got me, I think he got me taken off at half time in a game. In a game when he was having a nightmare, but I kept seeing him going over and talking to Stuart Pierce, talking to Stuart Pierce, talking to Stuart Pierce, and then going at half time. And then I came off. I think he, it was against Aston Villa. He missed a pen. He had, it looked like he had his shoelaces tied together and whatever, and he was having a nightmare. So then the Monday, he came over to me. I think he tried to apologize. And I said, Listen, I couldn't care less what you're trying to say now. From this point forward, I we will play together, but that's it. There's nothing more. And to be fair, I was like 19 at the time. So to get my balls out like that was quite a statement. But I said that to him and it ended up that we went to QPR together. And again, no issues with him as a player. Don't really overall like him as a person, but other people do. So I just let them do it. We just had a working relationship, fine. But in that game there, you look at it on the field, there's myself, him and Sean Wright Phillips, who all came through Man City's academy. So for three of us, that's a big game. That's Mm. one of the biggest games of our careers. And I know how I felt. I know roughly how Sean Phillips would have felt. But Joey's different. He's just a different person. But when he got that red card, that was probably the angriest I was with him throughout his entire career, or our careers together. Because I felt like, why has he done this to us now? Like, what's he thinking? Why is he being so stupid? And he's, you know, he has his re- he'd probably say he had reasons to do it and so on. He'd say he doesn't like me, but I, I don't really care. But that, he was one of our big players in that team. And he let us down. 
But in the same way that I think that we're happy because we ended up losing and staying up, I think he must be delighted that we ended up staying up, even though he got a red card. Because if this story could have been so, so different and the club could, be, could have been in a far different place, not necessarily better, but would have been on a different journey or route. And if it would have come from the back of that, like I, for me personally, I never fully like, I never fully got over him doing that in that moment because as someone who's supposed to be a big part of the team, I think he let us all down. And for me, I didn't, I don't remember hearing an apology from him after the game or anything like that. He just went and did what he did. Like he maybe spoke to some people, but I didn't see him. And I just felt more let down. I think because as I say, we came through the same academy. So playing in that stadium should have meant the same sort of thing. Like you want to go out and have a good game and stay up, but then instead he did, he did what he did. He got away with it, which is great or whatever. But yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't too, I wasn't too happy about that. Yeah, I think, no, no, I mean, Chris, I, Chris is about to ask a question, but can I just ask you, you we are way over our time with you. No, it's fine. Let's, let's keep going. Uh, whatever you need to do, I can, I'm happy to talk. I've, okay. got, I've got nothing but time now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's changed from the chief to father time in one podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, sorry, what's the question? I was just going to, sorry, I was just going to say on Joey, I think, yeah, um, the, the reason he got away with it was, as you just pointed out, was because it's because it all worked out well for everybody and 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 yeah that game at the end all the city fans were singing qpr songs vice versa it was all one yeah. big loving but i, I think joey that struck me we had him on our podcast a long time ago now he was on for you know he came on for 15 minutes stayed for 73 um yeah. he talked very eloquently he was he was he seemed quite a nice guy he seemed but i don't know yeah, about newcastle he's yeah, he talking about newcastle a lot but um but <laughs> He was the one that came out and said that they were bad eggs in the dressing room. Um, so, if it, so I'm just curious to know if you know who he was talking about, if it wasn't actually him. I think he was in that. I think when he said that, if I'm right, he was talking about Mauricio Isla, Eduardo Vargas and someone else. But the irony behind it is that, in my opinion, and in the opinion of quite a few others, those people, um, those were good people. They didn't mm. do well for the club, but they were good people. But one of those things which I kind of mentioned before is that when little groups start to be formed and so on, it's like if you're not part of the group, you're the enemy. And they have their opinions about what needs to be done to stay up. And if somebody's doing something on the contrary to that, then they get treated as if they have no value. But that wasn't the case. Like, say, if, if Eduardo Vargas would have scored goals for us, we would have stayed up. Like, that's it, plain and simple. But instead of trying to include them, you want to try and just vilify them. And it was an easy thing to do because for them, they're not part of this culture, not part of this country. So they don't even realise that they're being attacked as such. And even if they did, what did they say? Because Joey and Joey was like the centrepiece of the club at that time. And it's and it's disappointing. But as I say, it's it was always tough. It was always tough with Joey because he obviously had Twitter and he had his platforms and he could go and speak and do whatever. And he can make he can he can make a good point, but you can always make a point against it. But very rarely do you get to because he makes the point on something like Twitter. And you don't just go and have a Twitter response to him back. You don't have a back and forth. And I think at QPR as well at the time, he had a lot of um, he had a lot he had a lot of power. I think throughout most of his career that I was there with him, he had a lot of power. So he'd say certain things, he could criticize whoever, and there'd be no consequence. And when there's no consequence, you know, then he's the one who's leading the way. So he can call someone a bad egg, and people want to believe it because you know he's a, he's one of the centerpieces of the club. But those people, I'll, I'll tell you for a fact now, if I if I saw them today. They'd be happy to see me. I'd, happy, I'd be happy to see them, and they're only at the club for maybe six months to a year. But those mm. those weren't those weren't bad eggs at all. They just didn't really know what the club was, and it just wasn't working out for them. 
I mean, there was sorry, David again. Sorry, there was there was rumours he actually was really instrumental in having Neil Warnock sacked, and I don't know how (laughs) true that is, or if you know that, but that's the rumours. I he he wouldn't train for Neil and this that and the other. I mean, these are the rumours we as fans are hearing. Um, Was that the case? Was not that the case? Or did you not see any of that? So what I'll say is that before um, that was going on before I got there, but I've heard those rumours as well. The rumours weren't coming from fans; they were coming from players. Okay. So I would say that certain elements of that, I can't, can't go on the record and say this definitely happened specifically, but that was the tone because I think he, uh, I know a little story about that from when we were at City together. And I think he tried to, I think he tried to get someone to lose a job over there as well, but he was met with Richard Dunn and someone else. And they just told him to, uh, told him where to go, to be honest. He said, oh, let's get together and try and get whoever out. And Dunny was like, nah, I'm all right, mate. So yeah, it's, it's definitely possible. So you won't be going on the coaching staff at Fleetwood then? <laughs> no, no, listen. This is this is the perfect situation for him because he had so many, quotation marks, great ideas about how the game should be played. So now as a coach, make it happen. This mm. is it. This is your test. This is your test. Like there, were, there was a time I think it was, I'm revealing so much here. You can tell I'm just an angry ex-pro now. But we were... Uh, it's great. Yeah, we were... Uh, I think we were in Ireland for pre-season in 2014, 15, I think it was. When we signed like Real Ferdinand and people like that. And Real was brought in to play a three at the back, I think. And we were trying to play it in a particular way. And I think um, High Redknapp wanted to play with... I think it might have been two holders or something in the midfield as well. And this, this is what blew my mind. Joey was adamant, 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 adamant that Harry was getting it wrong. So we'd be, as players, like, you have a voice, but you don't really have a voice. Because if the coach says, jump on your left foot for 10 minutes, you jump on your foot for, left foot for 10 minutes because that's what you're hired to do, to listen to your coach and be told what to do. Like, they're no rogues or whatever. But he was against it, and it went for, like, a few days where he was ultimately sabotaging it. Every time we tried to do this formation, you wouldn't, you wouldn't do it properly because he kind of wanted it to fail. And he got to a point where we all gathered together, and Joey just told, told Harry Redknapp in front of everyone, this isn't going to work. I'm not going to do it. And then before you know it, first game of the season comes and we played a different formation. So just let that one sink in. Incredible. I don't, by the way, I, loads of what you've said is kind of really um, revealing. The one thing that's not revealing is that Joey Barton, I know you didn't say who it was, that Joey Barton didn't think much of fans because I think he was pretty, always <laughs> pretty well quoted as uh, saying he didn't think much of the opinions of fans. Um, yeah, that, he has his opinions. He has his opinions and that's, that's fair enough. You know, he's, he's a different type of person. Like lots of people love him. Lots of people don't like him at all. I fall into the second camp, but it's no bother because, you know, overall we had some good years together playing and that was that we were just doing our jobs. Yeah, I mean, just, I mean, again, it's not for you to speculate, I know, but it just sounds to me reading between the lines that if, if he was able to get managers to change systems, that he may be, he, he was maybe held in high regard above the management, you know, maybe someone on the board or something like that. I don't know. I mean, I... I would, what, I, what I would say, I won't necessarily make it specific to Joey, but what I will say is that there's certain players who have so much leeway and have the ability to go further than other players do. And maybe some of the players do that because they know that if they get punished, then the manager's in a worse situation because someone might become toxic within a dressing room. And for when that is the case, then you sort of have to weigh things up and think, is it really worth it? 
but you know, there's only so much of that you can do before somebody has essentially all the power. And you know, as I say, he was, he was a good player, but some of the things which he said and some things which he's done across his career, in my opinion, you know, I, I don't think I'd see anybody else even attempt to do or even come close to being able to get away with it. But he did it, and he obviously had a very successful career. Um, played a lot of games across a lot of years. He's obviously happy, made a lot of money as well. But um, yeah, as far as Overall, people who played with him, people enjoying it, it's probably less than he would realise or you'd think yourself. Uh, Ned, take us um, take us to Wembley, uh, 2014. So that era that, well, that era that you were mainly talking about with Mark Hughes then moved into the Harry Redknapp era. Mm-hmm. And that was very up and down. Well, very down and up, I suppose. Um, so we'd gone down and then Wembley. What was that like? How was that whole experience? We know it's only Remember- your second favorite day of your career <laughs> yeah but it's just because it's a high standard um but i remember um going to the game i was getting messages from people i remember speaking specifically specifically to Julian lescott saying oh this is so exciting it's going to be great because we we're staying in the hotel directly across from wembley so you can see the arches when you walk up in the morning you can see the fans going in and all that and he said oh it's a great day but only if you win i remember thinking that's that's a good point and, you know, we obviously wanted to win, but it was like that sort of energy of saying, this is, this could either be one of the best or worst days of your career. And you have to make sure it's one of the best. And being at Wembley was, it was incredible being there, getting ready for the game. You know, it's all coming down to this. The stadium was completely packed. I think there was a bit of rain just before uh, kickoff. And obviously we were playing against Steve McLaren, who was basically our head coach at the start of the season whilst Harry was having some knee surgery. So he would have known us inside and out. So now here's the matchup. Can we, can we beat Derby, this young progressive team or whatever? And I think I remember we, we had to shake hands before kickoff. And I think Steve must have told him to like, just be really like cold faced and cold hearted and all this. So they were thinking, oh, let's, let's be tough at the start. Let's have the edge and so on. I was like, all right. Because it doesn't quite hit the same when you're looking at 18, 19, 20-year-olds trying to be all tough when you're like in your mid-20s. But it's like, sure, whatever. Went into the game. We were doing okay. But that would kind of summed up the previous two, three months of our season. Mm. We were doing okay. We won games by being okay. I think the start of the season, when Steve McLaren was there, we were playing some great football. We could argue it's probably some of the best football we played in my six and a half years there. Having four, five, six hundred passes, winning games, two, three, four, nil. Free flow and Charlie Austin was thriving. This was going well, that was going well. It was nice. But then that kind of changed over time. And, you know, before we even went into that game and went into the playoffs, there was always this feeling like we should have been top of the league. We should, like, we had the best squad in that league in that year, in my opinion. And it wasn't even, I don't think many people would argue against it. But I remember we needed to beat Leicester in, like in December and they managed to beat us 2 1 or something like that at um, Loftus Road. And then they went on this crazy run where they just didn't didn't drop points, didn't lose any games. And we stumbled into the playoffs. And now we're in the final stumbling again against a team that came in kind of hot and we're doing well. Then the red card comes. And I'll be very I'll be honest with you here. So Gary O'Neill took the red card, but it was me that gave the ball away. So as I'm seeing Johnny Russell running towards goal, I'm panicking. Then as I see guys take him down, I'm like, oh God, thankfully he didn't score. Then when the red card comes out, I'm like, oh my God. Is we've had 48 games to get to this point, and I've gone and effed it up for everyone, just like that. But 
thankfully, in some ways, maybe because we just stumbled into the playoffs and we weren't playing well, but we were getting results. We didn't lose belief because we mm. weren't at that time the team that was going to have 60, 70% possession anyway. We were happy to just do what we needed to do to win a game because that's all we had been doing. And then the moment comes, we've been under pressure for ages and then Junior does what he does down the wing and then Richard uh, Keogh makes the mistake and falls to Bobby on his left foot in front of goal at Wembley, his favourite spot, slaps that in the top corner. And I was on the halfway line and all I, and I was on the side that all you could see are the QPR fans. So I mm. saw the full scope of every fan jump up and start celebrating. So the relief hits me. I'm seeing everyone going nuts. I'm running to Bobby in the corner. Like Bobby's my guy. Junior's my guy. So my people are involved in the big moment. And then from there, there's not enough time left for Derby to really mount a significant attack, especially because they only have one style of play, which is to get it down, bring it up slowly and this, that and the other. And we were just there ready and waiting, everybody behind the ball. And, you know, we, you could argue we stumbled into the Premier League, but stumbled we did, we fell forward. You know what I mean? And that day was, was yeah, we, overall that day was incredible. And to know then, because when I came to QPR, I'd only ever been in the Premier League. So then to go down to the Championship, but earn the right to be back in the Premier League, I understood what it meant for people who were climbing the ladders and stuff like this because I was there and, you know, I was playing there. But to be, to earn the right to do it, like we've played 49 games to get the chance to go back up there and play against those teams and to try and, you know, have a different type of career now. It was, it was absolutely incredible. And obviously, I, don't, I would never say to anybody that we deserve to win the game, but that's not the way football works. And we did what we needed to do to win the game, which basically summed up our whole 2013-14 uh, season, I believe. And what do you do as a player? Because obviously we're there as fans, and you know I found a video my mate took the other day of us of everyone going bonkers, like you said, at the final whistle. As a player, I mean you're drinking, you're sort of drinking that in, you're jumping on other people. Your head must be sort of all over the place. And then oh, what happens yeah. when you get in the dressing room? Well, just try and give us a sense of, of of what happened. It was just, it was just really for me. It was really surreal. You know, some people might have done that before, but that was my first time being at Wembley. And happened to win at Wembley. And I just didn't know what to do. Like, do we, are we supposed to go out and get the trophy? Do we go back out and celebrate on the field? Do we get medals? Like, what do we do? You're hugging everyone. Like, where's the trophy? Can we take some pictures? Oh, I've got some medals. Do we take some pictures here? Like, you're trying to do everything in, like, the moment's just passing by and you're trying to do so much, but you don't know what to do because you're not there all the time. You know, if you win in, if this is your fourth playoff final, you know the structure of it. We're not there all the time. Now, what's important? I'll get this shirt on do this, I'll wear the beers. Oh, let's all hang around this. Let's put some music on. And it's really, it's hectic. But one thing, here's a confession for you again. One thing which I wanted to make sure I did was to be close to Hilly when we walked up the stairs to lift the trophy. Because I knew that if I was, then now we immortalized forever, being right yeah. next to him as he's holding the trophy in his hand. <laughs> <laughs> and if you look at the pictures, I'm literally two people across, I think. Oh, so I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to be uh, to have been a part of that moment, yeah. <laughs> Just just going forward a wee bit, um, where do you think, again, this is what I love about our interview today, it's like, good point about QPR, bad point about QPR, where do you yeah. think we went wrong on that season after that? Because that was, that was, to me, as a fan, our second chance to get this right, our second chance to do this, let's not make the same mistakes. Mm-hmm. And then bang. Um, yeah. Um, let's say that was the season... I say when you brought in Rio and people like that, 
and we were trying to play the three at the back and all this, and it just wasn't, it just, it just wasn't, it wasn't, it just wasn't working. Like, in some ways, if you're going to be a team who's consistently, essentially yo-yoing or whatever, you want to have some level of consistency where you just keep the same players. But then also mm. you have this thing in the back of your mind where are these players good enough to play in the Premier League? So you bring more people in, but then you bring more people in and then you start to lose certain direction again. Like what team are you trying to be? And when things start to go wrong, how do you cope with that situation again? And it just wasn't, just wasn't, was not going well at all. We were trying, we were trying, we were trying. You know, there was, this was a far different effort to the two years, two years prior. But it just, just wasn't it wasn't clicking it was a different beast and I think that was when the fact that we stumbled into the playoffs in the championship showed when we were in the Premier League because we had no we just weren't a front foot team we weren't dominant at home you know sometimes you can dominate home and be bad away or whatever we were we just had just had nothing it felt like we just had no momentum for essentially the whole year and it's just it was a shame that it as I say it ended up like that because when you do get that promotion from the um, from the championship, you've got all the hope in the world and the belief that you can mm. do something. But then very quickly, you know, the harsh reality of playing in the Premier League comes again where, you know, you don't need to... I think the biggest difference for me between the Premier League and the championship is in the championship, more often than not, if you play well, I think you'll win games. In the Premier League, it's just about, can you limit mistakes? Can you take your chances? Because there were games like, I think that was a season where I think we were playing against Chelsea and we were doing really, really well. Like at home, I think we might have been dominating them. And then I think Green hit a short kicker, a short goal kick, got caught up in the wind. Next thing, Hazard's running through and somebody scores. You lose the game one nil, and it's like that's that's it. You know, you don't get you don't get the same sort of rewards unless you're getting the ball consistently in the goal and keeping it out of your own. And we just ultimately weren't good enough, and it was. It was majorly, majorly disappointing. But then, as I say, given the fact that we didn't really play that well throughout the season for long periods of time, it was no surprise. And did you think that when Les came in as a director of football, you, you kind of looked at him and think, I can only wish you the best of luck because you're going to have a hell of a job in your hands sorting this out? <laughs> it, de- it depends on what you want to see as the, as the role of the director of football, to be honest. Um, mm. like, like change... You see some directors of football who are essentially, you could call them managers, but then you see, there's some who you'll never see at all, who are literally just organising transfers and so on. Like I still, to this day, don't really know the specifics of what his role involves there because there were times when he'd be trying to press people about their body fats being too high, but then other times where I know he's in contact with agents talking about players coming into the club. You know, so I, I, I don't know. But the club, the club in that point, the wasn't as much of a mess as it was two years prior because again you had the team had changed a little bit you had some younger players in there some younger pieces and not necessarily people who were coming in for um huge money if you know what i mean to try and just save the day and some miraculous thing or you know i don't need to name names or anything but there was there was less i felt like there was less of that um but as i say unfortunately but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what Les thought was going to be the case. But he came in. He had he had some ideas. Said we weren't fit enough. We weren't this. We weren't that. We weren't whatever. Which is you know it seems like that's that's page one of somebody new coming into a, into a football club. Um, <laughs> but it just didn't <laughs> just didn't it didn't click to be honest. Um, Ned, why yeah. did you? Sorry, go on, Chris. Sorry, I think I've cut across. No, no you carry on, David. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll... Well, I was going to go to the end. I was going to ask why you left when you left because you were club captain and mm-hmm. you you left 
out of choice. You know, you ran your contract down and, and chose to leave. You were club captain of the greatest club in the history of world football. Exactly. Which is a pretty exactly. <laughs> no. Yeah. Why did you leave? For us. Um, there were a few reasons, really. Uh, so I had my I had my contract in place, which I signed uh, three years prior, I think. Um, must have signed in 2015 and that was when I had one year left on my deal and they said well we can't afford to pay this salary but we can spread this out across three years and as a player like it got me more um, security because it was a three-year contract and that would take me till I'm 31 I think it was so I'd rather have three years at the place which I'm familiar with and you know I'm a significant part of than just have one year left on a deal and whatever so I did the three years and I think there's supposed to be an option I think there's supposed to be an option in the last year where maybe if I played X amount of games, it would be automatically triggered. But the club set again said that they couldn't afford that trigger or they didn't want to afford that trigger. So they came with a counter offer, which was essentially like me being, being more or less on a pay-as-you-play deal, which blew my mind a little bit because I was the captain of the club and I basically played every game I'd been available for for the previous three years. So to be put in a place where it was pay, pay to play, like I'd been injured for two years prior, I didn't, I really didn't get it, but they weren't really willing to budge to a position which was like, I wasn't after a pay raise. Like I knew my money was going to go down because I knew the club was in a different situation and the money wasn't going to be the issue because I, that's ultimately why I ended up looking all around the world for, um, for a place to go afterwards. Because like, as I say, everywhere was open when everybody can afford to pay whatever you're looking for. Um, but yeah, they didn't, it was weird. It was like a really weird negotiation time. They just didn't seem, didn't seem interested. It seemed like they wanted to move on and whatever. And I was like, well, if that's what it's going to be, then that's fine. But if I thought if I got to, well, I forget how many games it was, but if I hit that many games, a new year would be automatic, but they turned it down. They said, no, we're not going to do that, but we're going to offer you this. And then this, as I say, was a pay-as-you-play deal. So I'm left in a position where I say, well, I can't, I can't really sign that because it's not like I'm on one leg. So I had to, um, I had to go and look elsewhere. And, you know, that's when I came to the USA and I've enjoyed myself since. Yeah. That seems really strange. Yeah, I didn't get it. I didn't get it at all, but mm. it's just what they were doing at the time. Because to be honest, I don't remember you being injured at all that much. No more than just no. your normal tours and, and, and you know, yeah. game things. Listen, so listen to this, yeah. So in those three years, the first year, I think it was, I played every minute of every game. I oh, know, so it might have been year two. Year one, I played like 42, 43 games. Year two, I played every minute of every league game. Year three, I was injured for, I think it was eight weeks. But then I played every other game from that. So I played 42, 46 and like 32, 33 games mm. in the space of three years. And then all of a sudden, it's like, well, here's a page you play deal for you. I don't get it. But that's where they were at and that's what they wanted to do. And the club was going in a different direction then because, you know, I was part of that because they made me club captain because they said they were going to go younger and they wanted someone to try and help lead and teach the younger players. But then unfortunately, they must have thought I'd pass my sell-by date because they said they didn't want any of it anymore. But it is what it is, I guess. But, I mean, the, the good thing, I mean, that, that sounds pretty atrocious to me, but uh, the silver lining, if you like, if there is one, is that it, that last game that I mentioned earlier on, um, terrific reception coming off the ground. I remember you had one kid in each arm. Um, yes, I did, yeah. And it's probably one of those things you probably didn't realise how much you appreciated until you 
were actually leaving. Yeah, for sure. And I'll be honest, throughout my six and a half years at QPR, it was probably six months to a year where people just didn't like me. But I think it's because they didn't get me and the club was in a hostile situation anyway. But I think when you show loyalty and you show passion and stuff, people get it. Like with Bobby Zamora, for example, there's a spell where people hated him. But I'd say they wouldn't have hated him if they realised that the guy was playing in pain every single week because he wanted to do the best for the team. He was throwing himself out there because he knows that, you know, if he doesn't play, then what's the next option? You know, that's the type of passion that fans would do themselves if they were in the same situation. And I remember he was used to get booed, but he said to me, I'm not leaving this club until they love me. And then he scores the goal at Wembley. And then that, that quickly dealt with that one. I think he said the same thing happened to him at West Ham. Um, so yeah, to, to be able to go around the stadium and hear people chanting chief and all that stuff. And then with the players as well, I said, I missed eight weeks, but then they voted me player of the season. So to be leaving again, according to what you said, felt crazy because the fans appreciate me and my teammates appreciate me and I must have been doing all right since I got player of the season. But then the club were like, no, just, I'm not really interested in that. But I had a great reception when I left there. And, you know, the only one that's topped that was when I was leaving um, my team in America on Sunday where they had, like, Instagram tributes and all that stuff. So clearly I, I must be a good person. It's, it's, it's weird because I look at it and I think, you know, six and a half years, you always... You always give 100%. You're, but when you're a captain, it makes sense now what you said about bringing the young players on because you definitely weren't a baller. You definitely weren't mm-hmm. shouting to people and trying to make them feel small. I stayed other players, mm-hmm. midfielders doing that to players all the time and, <laughs> and, 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 and just you know blaming them for absolutely everything, even if they give the ball away. And yeah. it's a shame that you left like that, but I'm hoping that you'll come back one day because... But then if you hadn't left, you wouldn't have been like viral having a go at your man Sultan, whatever the hell that was about. <laughs> about who, sorry? Your man um, Sultan, or whatever he's called himself, from Man United, who went to, uh, in the dressing room, you had to go... Um, oh, Zlatan, Zlatan, yeah. Yes, yeah. But, that, that's, that's what Zoltan. I was like, who, did, I, did I get involved? Don't mess with the Zoltan. That's, can I blame right? my but, dyslexia, please, Nedim? Uh, no. Yeah, welcome, yeah. Yeah. Okay. welcome to the yeah. world of call for me. Um, yeah. Then before you before you go, no, he hasn't the question yet. He hasn't answered the yeah, question. Yeah, no, I've yet. answered it. Yeah. So with with that incident, I think one of the big differences between the MLS and other leagues first is the fact that they run the league completely differently. Like I'm older than the league itself. You know, only started 25 years ago. So they and they try and be very very different because trying to align themselves with the other American sports, which run in a completely different manner. And one thing about this space is there's more attraction to stars as opposed to clubs themselves. So that year when I had my thing with him, if LA Galaxy were playing DC United, it'd be advertised as Ibrahimovic versus Wayne Rooney. So you get people who tune in to see that. But when those players leave, there's nothing there. And the league would promote and promote and promote Zlatan because he's obviously an exceptional player. But they wouldn't realise that once he leaves, because you've only promoted him, people have no link to the club that he's leaving and they just have a link to him. And the league like that, and the players are like that. The players feel scared to even look at a big star. The players feel scared to... Like Zlatan would call, as you said, I'm like a Ferrari amongst fears. And I'm thinking to myself, this clown's called me a fear. Who does he think he is? But all the players are like, oh my God, that's so funny, isn't it? But I'm like, he's talking to you. Like, he's just called you a fear. Like, get just get out of his backside for a second and see what he's saying. And the big difference, as I say, is when you're in England, if you've got Man City coming to Loftus Road, what type of game will Man City have? They'll have one where people will probably be in their faces. People will be kicking, mm. kicking De Bruyne, kicking whoever. 
But over here, they fear them. If there's a big star coming in, they're like, oh, I don't want to hurt them. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. Which is why when the game happened, we had, a, we had our beef or whatever. And then when he comes into my, my, uh, lock, my dressing room after the game, no player at any club that I've been at from the opposition who, who's had any issue with anyone has walked into a dressing room straight after a game. Yet still, he was allowed to walk through the front door, get past like our medics, walk into the space. None of my teammates are saying a word. But if that's in England, he's getting met at the door by our security, getting met next by our physios. And then the first player that sees him is going to tell him where to go. But over there, the coach is just different. But I think that's when people start, the player within the team start to respect me a lot more because they understood that I'm coming from a different place and I don't care who is what. The fact is this person's done wrong. So you have to get the um, politely leave the dressing room if you know what I mean. I don't think you're getting any sponsorship there. Three people speaking at once there. I was going to say, yeah, sorry, I've been trying for a bit. I was going to say very quickly, um, you played under Hughes, Redknapp, Ramsey, Warnock, Hasselbank and Holloway, I believe, which is quite a mouthful. Yes. Did you? Who was the favourite manager you played under and who's the one that you maybe weren't as keen on? It's um, a good question. Uh, I think if Mark Hughes wasn't manager at QPR in 2012, I probably don't come to the club because I had him at City and that's when I started, I kicked on a little bit at City because I played a lot of games and he changed the infrastructure there and taught me what it was to, and taught lots of us what it was to actually be more than just a player. So he was a big part of a lot of people's careers in that point. Not everyone, but it was a big part of a lot of people's careers. So that's why I came. Um, in terms of personalities I liked, Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank I liked because he, for as much as he didn't do that well there, um, he, he had his ideas and he stuck with it. And he was, he felt like he was fair to everyone, which is actually quite rare in this game because some people always want to try and bully the players who are on the fringe or whatever, the ones who don't speak up. But I'll never forget with Jamie, there was one point Jamie Mackey was talking during like a, like a team session or whatever. And Jamie just lost it and just dressed him down in front of everybody. And this was Jamie Mackey's football club. And it seemed nuts. But what he was doing in that moment was wrong. And the fact that he dressed him down then, then that everybody knew they could get dressed down as well if they were doing wrong. And that I like when people set the tone like that because it raises the standard. Whereas I think at times there are other people who, when you can, you know, do whatever you want, it, it affects other people because other people know that they can't. So, you know, if one person doesn't try and you don't try, there's only one person who will be criticised and it won't be the person who gets the, who is like the golden child. But with Jimmy, like training was, was, it was long, it was competitive. And I think people, most people liked him. Um, in terms of managers who... Uh, I didn't necessarily get on with the most. I think early doors, Chris Ramsey, I think he struggled. I think by the end, he was starting to get that he needed to have the players on board to be able to be a bit more successful. But by then it was too late because I'll never forget, we used to do certain team drills and certain things he was doing, which were very on the contrary to what the norms are. Like when you, he would, at the times, at that point, he would get into work later than players which I've never seen from anybody else, or we'd go out into the training field to do a warm-up. And he, hadn't, he wasn't in yet, so the set training session hadn't been decided what they were going to do. But that's, again, that's abnormal. But then one thing which we would do, we'd like lay 10 or 11 balls out on the, on the field. And people had to go over in twos and do like core skills, which was like headers, volleys, and this, that, and the other. And that's an academy thing. 
because next thing I'm looking at Bobby Zamora at 34 years of age, having to work on chess volleys and stuff like this. And I'd say most of that stuff got cleared by the end, but it was too late and ultimately he lost his job. So I'd probably say um, that early, early stage of him, I don't think that was really what people were hoping for. Uh, final question, Ned. How do you look back on your time at QPR? I um, it was it was it was a hell of an experience because within two weeks of me arriving, I was seeing players fighting on the field, throwing headbutts and stuff like that. And bearing in mind, like I was at City just before, and they were going for a title, and everything was hunky dory because they're winning every single week. Like that was like a baptism of fire. I remember getting there day one at the training ground, which you don't take you to when you get when you sign. You only see the stadium. You never see the <laughs> training ground. I remember stretching on the floor and there was enough dust under one of these treadmills to make me think that he'd never been moved in 10, 15 years. I was like, okay, this is different. But in time, mm-hmm. I understood the city of London better. And it's one of my favorite cities in the whole world now. I understood what the fans were interested in and understood what it was like to play under pressure at that place. And for as much as we had lots of lows, the, the playoff semi-final against Wigan was one of my favourite games of my whole career because I remember getting to the stadium, seeing hundreds of fans outside the stadium, getting into the stadium, playing in the game. We were 1-0 down, didn't make any difference. The noise was incredible. And when we were pushing, 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 that's one of the best atmospheres I've ever played in, even though it's 17,000, 18,000 people. It felt like everybody in there was singing and everyone in there was screaming and shouting and about a foot away from the opposition. So we had so many ups and downs, but the ups were incredible. The downs were sad and disappointing, but I got through those. And as I, as I left, I was respected by the fans, respected by the players, respected by the staff. And as I say, I walked away knowing that some of the best moments in my career came in the good times at that football club, both at Wembley, at the Etihad, and at Loftus Road, which when it was rocking, it's one of my favourite places to play football. Brilliant. I only beat Chelsea a couple of times as well. Well, you know, that's the that's, that's, that's standard, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. What a brilliant 20 minutes that was. Yeah, <laughs> 20 and minutes. I, 20 and, I re- minutes. And, I re- and I renamed one of the world's greatest footballers. Yeah, Zoltan or something. I'm sure your listeners will let you know about that. I mean, so to be fair, I have had... It's my COVID brain. <laughs> yeah. When, when are you coming back, Eddie? When uh, are you coming back, back to the country from America? I uh, should be back the first week in December, and then that is cool. me kicking my feet up for the next, for the foreseeable future. Cannot wait. I don't wow. think that's going to be the case. I think I think we'll be seeing you in TV and radio, and hopefully <laughs> back at Rangers as well. Yeah, okay. we'll, we'll see. We'll see if I get invited. But one thing for sure is I don't have enough clothes to be on TV, so expect to hear me on radio or see me on TV. How about that? <laughs> I hear you, big man. I hear you. But I'd love to see you back at Rangers, even if it's just to have a pint with the fans. You're more than welcome. Yeah, you, you'll see me at some point, yeah. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thank You're more you. than welcome. Thanks, Thanks for coming on. And brilliant. Cheers. Good Thank you. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Cheers, mate. Take care. Bye. Wow. Oh, I can't believe I called him Sultan. I am oh. so embarrassed. We're no still recording, I think. You, it's like calling, recording. like it's like calling Gary Bannister Paul Bannister or Gary Goddard. Oh, what an idiot! Anyway, didn't uh, play for QPR. Not, we, that was are we finishing up? Are we finishing up, fellas? Well, there's not you a lot are, more we can say to that. We there's not a lot more. We'll and do, we'll do, we'll do one next week, David. We talk about the games. 
How about that? Let's just the one thing that we haven't obviously got on this record because when we got on the Zoom call, Nevin said was he said, "Are you the podcast that did forty-five minutes of blank, uh, a silent podcast for forty-five minutes?" Which, of course, after the Sheffield Wednesday defeat last season, we published. Uh, for, we said the players didn't turn up, so we're not going to bother, and we did a forty-five-minute podcast yeah. of no sound. So he either listens to us or doesn't listen to us, I suppose. Um, it, it was also the podcast where um, his, his chief nickname first became public and led to it being sung around the ground, but we, we forgot to say that. That was, yeah. There was a lot in that. That was great. But um, I, I have to go and put an 11-year-old to bed. So I definitely have to go. So I'm going to wrap this podcast up. And quite frankly, everyone's turned off at this point anyway, because that was a brilliant hour with Nedham and no one wants to hear the rest of us. So yeah, um, I agree more. I'm going to wish you all a good international break. And um, Come on, Northern Ireland. Come on, England, in the two or maybe three games that we've got. We're not quite sure at the moment. No, we're, we're, playing, we're playing a final to get to the Euros, mate. It's a slightly more important than a friendly. No offence, but yeah, come luck. on, Northern Ireland. Here we are, mate. Thank you all for listening. This has been Open All Us. You are, Rangers.